we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hello and welcome back to Statutes of Liberty, our podcast. Today we'll be talking about immigration status violations and how to avoid them as the gig economy continues to grow. So as people develop uh, side hustles, as you have self-employment kinds of relationships, which of these kinds of issues are going to cause an immigration problem uh, or going to require work authorization? Joining me today are my partner, Michelle Madera, and Drew Zeltner, a senior counsel here at the firm. And we are excited to be able to talk about this with you. An earlier version of this episode, episode 12, was published in February of 2019. We are going to be updating the discussion. We'll be talking about some of the new developments like the NCAA's name, image, and likeness uh, rules and how those might affect student athletes. Uh, We also want to uh, make sure that we answer questions that we have been frequently receiving in response to that episode 12. So we hope to cover some of the same ground, uh, but uh, feel free to listen to that episode if you haven't heard this one. So some of the things we want to talk about, what does and does not constitute work that would need work authorization? How do we understand when something is employment or work? Uh, Is there a difference between something you do once versus doing it over and over? What about the the question of volunteering? When is uh, volunteering needing to be work authorized? And of course, what are the negative immigration consequences if you are determined to have been doing work without authorization? So let's get started. Michelle, what is the definition of work or employment? Thanks, Bill. The definition of work um, is a performing services in exchange for compensation. And that compensation could be monetary or it could be in the form of a benefit. So a lot of times we get asked, you know, what if I um, babysit, but instead of um, getting paid, they give me room and board and pay for my meals. You know, I'm a college kid or I'm serving as a nanny. I would still say that that is work um, and employment, right? It is in exchange for a benefit that you are receiving. Even if it's not monetary compensation, you are still um, obtaining that benefit in exchange for the services you are performing um, for that family. So I think that is a great way to think of it, um, you know, going beyond the monetary compensation and just thinking about the services in exchange for something else. Right. And I often find, Michelle, I think we're kind of out on an island here sometimes on this issue because there is no definition of employment in the Immigration and Nationality Act, right? So we're kind of left to the uh, Webster's definition, the typical definition, right, that folks would, uh, you know, utilize in employment law, sometimes presents, you know, interesting close questions uh, for us, you know, on the immigration side to decide, you know, are we in a safe harbor or are we in a, you know, gray area, if you will, um, that could cause, um, you know, some immigration issues. Yeah, that's a great point, Drew. Um, I think by the Immigration Nationality Act not defining employment, it does lead to a lot of gray areas, which we're going to kind of sort through today. So we have to look at, like you said, employment law and other um, resources to try to define where the immigration law might fall in terms of employment. And as a sort of wrap up to that, so you know, we we certainly want to look at how other areas of law are going to be treating 
uh, any activity that you're going to be doing. If there is uh, work that might be treated for tax purposes, for example, as employment income, that's going to be a negative factor if the immigration service is looking at it and trying to determine whether it constitutes employment or not. But as Michelle sort of went through, we're looking for three elements as we go through these different examples that we're going through. Is there uh, some effort is there some remuneration, which could be money or something else of value? And is there an exchange between the two? So let's uh, look at an example, a contest. Uh, you enter a contest, if you win, it's a dancing contest. Uh, and uh, the winner of the contest gets a prize. Um, if, you, if you don't win, you don't get anything. Would that constitute employment, Drew? I would think it would not, Bill. I think you're in a in a fairly safe situation there to 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 think that it would not constitute um, employment. It's also you know a one time activity. If you're doing it over and over again and you're becoming a, you know a competitor in dance, I, I might think of the situation a little bit differently. Um, but because of the you know the one time nature of the event, I, I think the um, you know I, I think you would be fairly safe uh, in that activity not constituting work. What if we sort of make a little bit more of a tie between an activity and the reward? So, Michelle, what about if you uh, follow up on something that says if you complete this survey, you get a ten dollar gift card? Again, I would I would agree with Drew there. This I don't think that at one time um, entering a contest or participating in a survey would really um, lead to it being seen as employment. I think the the factors are there, right? You are performing a service by filling out a survey. In exchange, you're getting that compensation. But I think the the one-time isolation is really important there. If you start filling out surveys all the time, every day, 40 hours a week, yeah, I think I think we're gonna cross a line there. But I think you know, taking in the holistic, um, all the factors is gonna be really important in these analyses. Right. And if you're doing, you know, surveys all day, every day, I think you also need to evaluate your life's priorities, but that's, you know, beyond the subject of this podcast. Fair enough. Uh, now, there are situations where it's a little less clear whether you're performing a service. Uh, classic example here, uh, you sign up for a medical study and you agree to show up at a doctor's office and they take a blood sample or give you a drug and then you come back and they measure it and uh, Drew, would you say that uh, participating in a medical study uh, and receiving money for that would constitute employment? I think it's. I, I think Bill, it's very analogous to the prior example of the contest. I think if it's a one, you know, a one-time, um, you know, shot, um, I think it probably does not fall on the continuum of work. Um, you know, again, if you're a professional medical study finder and you're, you know, really generating income from this, I think my mind could change. But I think a one-off medical study is is likely not to be seen, um, you know, by the immigration service as constituting work. And of course, uh, closely related to that, Michelle, is the uh, ever popular donation of plasma, which, uh, uh, you know, you're not exactly donating it because they are giving you money because you agree to have the plasma taken out of you. Uh, do you think donating plasma in this way should be considered uh, employment? Again, I think I think if it's a one time or maybe it's a something you do every six months, twice a year, and it's kind of limited um, to, you know, when there was a shortage or when you um, wanted to donate, um, even if there was an exchange there for um, money, I, I think that's limited enough that it wouldn't constitute work. Again, if you start donating once a week and getting paid for that, again, I, I would think that that at some point would probably constitute work um, and possibly even income. 
but you'd have to speak to your tax advisor about that. Um, so again, I think at some point that crosses the line, but I think these limited situations, if you're doing it once in a while, are acceptable um, without you know violating your immigration status or being or constituting work. All right, so let's talk about activities that uh, people might uh, engage in to make a little extra money or turn a hobby into uh, something more that can generate income for them. Uh, these are side hustles. So there'll be a separate podcast which covers the issues that around entrepreneurial activity. So if you're actually starting a business, if you uh, have an idea with uh, colleagues from school, uh, do check out our podcast on uh, immigration status issues for the entrepreneur and particularly how to start up a business uh, while you're not in a work authorized status. But this really, uh, these questions are, are people who haven't gone into a full-fledged business but at the same time, they have some activity which might generate some revenue for them on the side. So Drew, let's talk about a person who might have developed an app. Uh, they, they might have developed it with no particular uh, business in mind, but they put it up on the app store and uh, you're not sure whether anybody's gonna buy it. You put a little price tag on it. Uh, you might code and maintain it. Is that gonna be considered employment? Well, I think, Bill, you know, now I'm, I'm getting a little bit queasier as to what constitutes work. I mean, surely you're putting this app up there, you're charging for it, right, with the intent of selling it, right? You're putting up it up there with the intent of wanting folks to buy it. Um, you know, I think that is much more of, of a gray area. Um, I think it would probably be fairly aggressive to say that, you know, that doesn't constitute work. I think that is a much you know closer call because um, I think there's a clear intent there to want to engage in multiple transactions. We're not talking about a one-time you know donation or a contest or, or uh, uh, something of that nature. I think this is engaging on a deeper level, so I, I would have concerns here. Now, if I change the facts, Drew, just slightly and say, uh, you know, you were taking a coding class and you did a class project uh, that was an app and, and the teacher at the end or your colleague said, wow, this is a really great app. You should put this up in the app store. Do you think that changes anything? It, it may not. I mean, if, if you can link it to, you know, an academic endeavor that was part of a class, um, you know, I, I think that is, is a helpful factor. But again, if it's going up there for money and you're repeatedly, you know, making sales or even, you know, frankly, just putting it up there, uh, you know, with the intent of, you know, wanting to, um, to sell this app, I think you could potentially have a problem here. Now, Drew, if he took it one step further and that person started um, you know, getting advertisers for their app. Do you think that would make it more clear that that would be employment? Absolutely, Michelle, I do. You're taking fundamental steps of trying to raise the profile of the app, right? You're marketing to advertisers, you're accepting advertisers' uh, funds to market, right, for your app. I think that would clearly take it over the top in your example. And I think that's a great way to think about this. So self-employment is employment. So in this kind of situation where you have uh, developed a business, where you're actively participating in growing it, that is likely to be considered employment, even though you don't have a technical employer-employee relationship. Uh, Michelle, there are a lot of apps out there which actually facilitate self-employment or, or working as an independent contractor, driving for Uber, shopping for Instacart, uh, doing odd jobs on TaskRabbit, do any of the these apps don't consider themselves to be your employer, uh, even in California after AB5? Do you think uh, that if you're an independent contractor, you can go ahead and do these things if you don't have work authorization? Absolutely not. I think that 
Um, with any of those apps, even though you're an independent contractor, it is still employment. Driving for Uber, drive deliveries for DoorDash, um, you know, Instacart, TaskRabbit. I don't think there's anything different between that and doing uh, being a regular delivery guy for a restaurant. You know, these are all the types of things that constitute work. You are getting paid to provide a service in exchange for that service you're providing. You are getting um, that money. And so I think that very clearly falls in the definition of employment there and, and would be a violation of your um, immigration status if you don't have that kind of work authorization. Right. And sometimes I think there's a misconception amongst folks that if I do it, you know, once a month or, or once a week, um, the, the low frequency of it doesn't make it constitute work. And, and let's just uh, dispel that notion right now. Right. If you're going to work in the United States for one day, you need work authorization. Right. So it's not an excuse to say I drive for Uber three days a month or four days a month or, or, or whatever it is. Right. And I think this is one of those cases where it's really helpful to look at other resources. Right. Um, there was recently a case where somebody was driving for DoorDash and he was a government employee. And so um, the government found that he was abusing his government time because he was supposed to be working for the government while he was actually driving for DoorDash. Um, and that was um, an activity that was not acceptable. And it was, you know, working for another company while you were on government time. And I think those are important examples to be looking at when we're looking at these types of situations that are sort of a gray area and, and don't have clear definitions in the Immigration Nationality Act like we were talking about before. We're looking at, you know, what other courts are holding, are these abuses, um, you know, and, and what they're finding there. And in that case, they found that that was an abuse of his government time. He had to pay back um, for the time that he should have been working for the government when he was driving for DoorDash because that was an activity um, that constituted employment outside of his government role. So I think it's important that we're just always looking at these kinds of things, especially when they're so cutting edge. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, Uber, Instacart, TaskRabbit were not really things. Um, and so the Immigration Nationality Act hasn't kept up with um, these changes. Well, and before we get too far away from uh, internet stuff, Michelle, uh, Social media influencers. I understand they're, uh, and, and I'll defer to you as as uh, more Instagram than than I am. There are folks who actually monetize their channel. We talked about that when when Drew was talking about developing an app and and developing advertisers for it. But what about uh, if you have a channel, you have a passion uh, for something, and then you know people in the space begin to donate things to you. So you know you give makeup advice on a channel, and 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 so makeup products suddenly start sending you things, or you give diet advice, and and suddenly diet supplements start showing up at your door, or you know you're uh, you're a hobbyist, and so uh, all of a and supplies for your hobby show up uh, because people want them featured on your channel. Would accepting those kinds of, of in-kind uh, uh, donations be considered employment, assuming you're not monetizing the channel? I, I would say yes. And the reason is that even if it's not, like we said earlier, a monetary benefit, you are still getting a benefit. You're still receiving those products in exchange for something you did. Um, so by advertising, you know, a certain kind of product or recommending a hotel, that hotel then said, okay, you can stay here for free, those types of things. I think um, that still is an exchange for the service you provided. It's still a benefit that you are receiving. And so I would, I would um, hesitate to recommend anybody do that um, if they are not authorized to do so on their visa. 
Right. And, and oftentimes, too, these sites will also pay for that kind of in, uh, influencing as well, because they know if you put up the, um, you know, the sneakers or whatever the product is on your Instagram, it's going to lead to sales and you'll you know, expressly get a cut of those sales. So sometimes I think it becomes a very obvious, uh, obvious question in that regard. And that, I think, brings up the you know, latest issues with the NCAA allowing uh, athletes to have more control over their name, their image and their likeness. Uh, as you look at different kinds of deals that are being cut, uh, I think you can distinguish between a deal where, uh, you know, for example, uh, you you might uh, agree to have your photograph put in a print advertisement, uh, you know, for a, a particular sports equipment. Giving of your photograph, your image, uh, would probably not be employment, right? It, certainly, the performing of a service in exchange for uh, that uh, that reimbursement is more clearly uh, something you could argue is defensible. On the other hand, if you appear in an advertisement um, actively you know, talking about and, and sort of selling the sports equipment uh, that you're being asked to endorse, uh, in those situations, I think it's it's much clearer that you're, again, over that line, uh, as Michelle just explained, with the, the influencers who are, who are monetizing their influence. Yep, and I, I think I would tell you that Roger Federer would say the $8 million he receives from Rolex every year is certainly employment uh, as far as he's concerned. Uh, right, and, and again, it's a helpful, as, as uh, Michelle said when we were talking about Uber and Instacart and those kind of places, it doesn't matter that you're treated as an independent contractor uh, in that scenario. Um, so, Drew, let's uh, let's talk about you know maybe even this is something that doesn't happen online, uh, but uh, you know you've got uh, a couch or a car or something that you've uh, been using for a while and now you want to sell it. Uh, so you either put it on Craigslist or you go old school and put it in the newspaper uh, or you put up one of those little flyers in your local deli uh, that you rip the bottom off of. Is selling something that you've owned uh, going to be considered employment? For the most part, Bill, I don't think it is, right? If I'm moving and I and I want to sell my couch, uh, you know, or TV, for example, I think you know that's a one-time sort of uh, you know, one-time transaction. Um, I don't think that's going to constitute employment. Again, if it, if it's something that I'm doing, you know, continually and you know, uh, making furniture, you know, to sell it, uh, you know, multiple times, I think that may change the calculus, um, but not uh, in that limited instance. I think you're okay there. Right. I think that I think I think it's a one-off case, and there are actually uh, precedential decisions about uh, an individual who was basically running a car dealership. So he had he had four or five cars that he had on his parking lot at any given time. He was uh, buying and selling them. That then you know becomes self-employment, basically engaging in in employment and business in the United States. Right. Exactly. I think the frequency. Right. If, if, right. If you're a, a classic car dealer versus selling, um, you know, your old Honda Accord. Now. Michelle, one of the frequent questions around buying and selling things that we get asked is uh, real estate. Can you invest in real estate? Uh, can you buy a fixer-upper and make a long-term investment? You might be in the United States for four or five or six years uh, due to being here for graduate school, for example. Uh, what do you say about these real estate-related activities? Sure. Um, and I think, you know, any sort of investment is generally acceptable, right? It's where we cross that line into when it's employment, as as we've this has sort of been our theme throughout this podcast, right? So, you know, if you buy a house and it needs a bunch of work and you live there and you work on it, and you know, after a few years, you decide, well, you know, I'm ready to move on and you sell it at a profit, I wouldn't constitute that employment, right? You live there, you um participated in fixing it up, 
as most homeowners do, and and I think that's perfectly acceptable. You know, if you start buying multiple homes and flipping them and selling them at a profit, not you know not living there, or um, you know maybe managing homes and using them as rental properties, those kinds of things I would say are going to constitute employment at some point. You know, I think there's going to be again this holistic review of the the activities if you purchase an investment property and you have a management company who's, you know, running it, well, maybe that's an investment more than it is you being employed by that company to, you know, maintain it. But if you have, you know, five apartment buildings and you're, um, you know, fixing broken pipes and other things that go wrong, then at some point that will probably be constituting employment. It's no longer the sort of passive investment that you are participating in. Right, that sounds like you're a property manager in that example. Exactly. (laughs) So it's a great topic to discuss with your accountant at the same time you're discussing with your immigration lawyer. Find out what the tax treatment of those activities are. There are certain beneficial tax treatment that is available to active real estate investors that are not available to passive real estate investors. If you're taking advantage of those active tax avoidance uh, kinds of schemes, that may show that it is employment. Uh, Whereas if you take the purely passive role, which may not have as favorable a tax treatment, it uh, would align with the idea that it is not, the level of activity you're engaging with is not employment. Now, there are a few sort of myths that are always floating around there. Drew, I've heard this myth that as long as you get paid outside the United States, it's perfectly fine to do work within the United States. What do you think about that? Well, then why wouldn't everyone just do that then, Bill? Why would they come to us ever to get a visa? So that, of course, is a myth. If you're providing a service and and you're being compensated for it, it's immaterial if the benefit is primarily overseas. You need U.S. work authorization. We get that uh, that question, you know, very often from folks who want to be creative. We understand the uh, the creativity when the EAD processing times are you know are forever and ever. But do not go down um, you know that road. You will regret it. Now, what if we change that fact slightly, though, Drew, and just say, uh, you know, for example, I might be asked to translate uh, uh, some things into my home language. Uh, You know, I'm here in the United States. I'm in graduate school. I know a lot about the topic. So, uh, you know, a a company in uh, my home country says, uh, you know, in your free time, whatever you have time, do this translation. We will pay you in our country uh, once you're done because we'll sell it in our country. Do you feel any differently about that? I don't, Bill. You're still performing a a, a translation service that you're being compensated for, right? So it kind of meets those tests of employment. Um, In that regard, I would would say beware. Okay. Um, Michelle, what about things that you might do to build your resume, participating professionally in some activity and organizing a conference, uh, uh, something like that? Uh, Even if they give you something in appreciation, like a a lunch or or a little uh, glass uh, takeaway. Well, you know the old saying, there's no free lunch. Um, No, just kidding. So I think, you know, we'd have to look at what that activity is and if it's the type of position that somebody might normally volunteer for, right? So there's, you know, a difference between volunteering for a hospital um, and, you know, being a candy striper or, you know, volunteering at the soup kitchen uh, and handing out, you know, food on Thanksgiving 
Then there's, you know, another level where you're volunteering for a professional organization um, that is still a nonprofit um, or still treated as a nonprofit. And so your services there are really, truly volunteer. It's not something normally somebody would be paid to do by that organization. And and so those, I think, would still be safely volunteer positions. Where I think we're going to cross a line is if you're working for a company um, where somebody would normally get paid for that. It's really, you know, there are a lot of rules around unpaid employment and unpaid internships to really protect the employee um, and make sure that it is above board and is not an abuse of, of their um power and system there. So we really want to make sure that the type of organization, the type of work you're doing is truly volunteer in order to ensure you're protected against um, any concerns there. And you certainly would want to look at the uh, U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division does have a 17-factor test to determine whether an internship opportunity is properly volunteer or not. I think it's also really critical if the employer normally pays for the internship, that's going to be considered employment. You don't make it not employment simply by not taking the money. That's a a frequent question we get. Well, what if I just choose not to get paid? That's really going to be a problem. Right. Uh, And another one is what if I get paid later, right? right, So I'm unpaid and then I, you know, I, I work and then I eventually have work authorization Um, And then they give me a stipend. I think that that is clearly um, still payment for the activities you previously performed. And, and, you know, I think if it doesn't pass the SNF test, you probably shouldn't do it. Sure. So Drew Drew obviously talked about shifting uh, the payment uh, in space by by shifting the payment outside the United States. That doesn't help. Michelle, you're talking about shifting the payment in time by shifting it to a time when you have work authorization. That's probably not going to help. If the services are in exchange for remuneration, you're going to have a problem. So, Michelle, wrap us up here and and give us the big takeaways here. What are the uh, what are the things you really need to know as you consider these questions of employment? Of course. So I like to think of it. Um, to the most recent point of where are you physically? If your feet are planted in the United States, you're going to need work authorization in the United States. So first think about where you are when you're performing that activity. Um, you know, where on this spectrum does that activity lie? Um, is it, you know, a one-time instance? Um, you're winning a contest, you're, you know, playing on Wheel of Fortune, those types of things, or is it crossing the line where Every, um, you know, you're you're selling a product on Instagram and you're making money off of it, right? Where where are those lines being drawn? And we have to look at the whole picture there. So I think that those are really really important takeaways here. If you have already performed an activity in one of those gray areas, you should certainly let us know. We'll try to work out the best ways to navigate that situation. But ultimately, the best thing you can do is stay out of the gray area. Um, And, you know, I hate to sound really conservative or alarmist, but, you know, immigration is really finicky. We don't want anybody to have um, potential pitfalls in applying for visas or green cards down the road. Even if it's something that happened 10 or 15 years ago, um, it can still come back. Um, and be harmful to your case. Um, I actually just recently had a case where the person was denied entry to the U.S. because something that happened 15 years ago when he was going to school and he um, 
worked without authorization for just a few days. Um, and, uh, you know, it came up in his entry and, and they turned him around. So it can have really drastic consequences. Um, and so that's why we we do generally be a little bit more, um, you know, conservative because we want to make sure your status is protected in the United States and you ultimately are going to be able to live and work here without any issues. If you're thinking about participating in any of these activities, reach out to us. We are happy to help navigate that with you um, to avoid any any unauthorized employment or any other future immigration problems. Well, thanks very much, Michelle. Thanks, Drew, for participating in our talk today. Uh, for our listeners, we ask you to give us a five-star rating and review. It helps people find us and lets uh, us know what information that you'd like to hear about from us. If you have questions or you'd like to have us address something in the future, please email podcasts at classcolaw.com with any questions you'd like us. And of course, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and WeChat. You can also sign up for emails and latest alerts at our blogs at classcolaw.com. And again, thank you all for listening and for joining us. For more information, visit us at classcolaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.